you would, turn to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. And the title of the message is Trust in Him at All Times, verse 8. And Father, I do pray today we all bow our hearts and heads before you, Lord, and just ask that you'll show us clearly, Lord, your love for us and the power that you have for us that we can put our trust in you at all times. And that's my prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So we're going to look at Psalm 62 and begin reading in verse 1. It says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God, and from him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, and I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you. As a bowling wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongs unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. So most commentators will tell you, and I, I agree with them, that Psalm 62, it doesn't say it in the title. Sometimes in the title it'll tell you when David wrote a particular psalm. But I believe it was written during the revolt of Absalom. And the language in verses 3 and 4 speak of many people seeking to topple him from his throne. That's kind of the impression you get. And this whole period was a great time of trial for him when he wrote these psalms going. So you think about it. You know, David's got his favorite son turning against him with many of the people. His best friend and counselor, Ahithophel, took the side of Absalom. And the one who had anointed wisdom from heaven is now going to be using it against David, giving it to his enemies. And so David had to leave Jerusalem in disgrace with his head covered. This is a time of great trial for him. And it says in 2 Samuel 15, 30, it says this, David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, and it says he wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. And I'm sure he's hearing in the background the voice of many that were saying, because this is all a result of what? His sin with Bathsheba. And I'm sure he heard him saying there is no help for him and God because things were looking dark and his faith was sorely tried. And yet, listen to what the sweet psalmist says in verses 1 and 2. He says, truly, my soul waits upon God for from him comes my salvation. He says he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. And David says, I shall not be greatly moved. And so, you know, it's been said that David, it says it in the Bible, that David was a man after God's own heart. 
And why was that? Why was he a man after God's own heart? Because we've done enough teaching in here through Samuel over the course of the last year or so that we know it wasn't because he was perfect. He was far from that, and the Bible doesn't hide all of his many flaws. So he was a great man, wasn't he, though? He was a great man and exercised great faith in God in many ways. But he fell as hard as a man could fall in the Bible in that sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. He couldn't have fallen any harder than he did. But what made him a man after God's own heart is no matter how hard he fell, how many times he missed it, you know what he did? He always came back to God, didn't he? Always came back to God. And that was the great evidence of grace in his life, is what it was. His heart for God, it was like a homing pigeon. You know, it didn't matter where you threw that thing up, threw David up in the air, or where you threw him down. He's headed straight back towards God. Didn't matter where he was, how far he fell. Always making a beeline back to God's throne. Confessing his sin, desiring God's presence, delighting in God's words and ways. He loved the Lord. And that was put in him from a youth. He was saved, I believe, from a youth on. And that work of grace, so despite his many sins, that was his heart. He's always being brought back to God. That is God's grace in a person's life. So it's not how many sins, how great a sins, but it is God's grace in his hand on your life. That's what it is. So David loved the Lord, and his life was one of trusting in the living God. And he wants us to do the same. Look what he says there in verse 8, the title of the message. He says, listen, trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him, because God, he says, is a refuge for us. He's saying God can be trusted at all times and in all things. He is a refuge. He's a safety from danger, one we can trust to protect, heal, deliver us from all the attacks of the enemy. Because we live in a dangerous world, don't we? In many ways, it's a dangerous world. But the Almighty God promises to be our supernatural rock of protection. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Isn't that what we say? That's Psalm 91. Verses 11 and 12 are the key that explains why we can have this joyful confidence in God. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, God has spoken once and twice have I heard this, that power belongs unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy. So David says God hasn't just said it once, but he said it twice. And when he's saying that, that he's saying it twice, he's emphasizing what he wants to declare. And he says, I know that all power belongs to God. And also what belongs to God is mercy. Or that word would really better be translated unfailing love. Because the word for mercy, that's translated mercy there, it's chesed. i got to get a little more guttural to be a real Jew. What it means is God's unfailing covenantal love. And so if you just look in the next psalm, Psalm 63.3, it says, and we sing this song, because thy loving kindness. It's the same word, hesed, that's translated mercy up in verse 12 of Psalm 62. Because thy loving kindness, he says, is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. We could stop and sing that song. It wouldn't bother me at all. I love that song. So what I'm trying to say and what I believe David's saying in this psalm is the basis for our faith is understanding that both of these attributes of God are directed 
towards us. God can be trusted at all times because he is almighty and he's full of loving kindness or mercy. That's why he can be trusted at all times. Because if you leave out one of them, it doesn't work. So if God is only power, we could believe he could do anything, right? But we wouldn't sure that he would do it for us if all he was was power. He could be almighty, all-powerful, but I don't know if he would use that power for my good. If that's all he was was power. And if he was just love but had limited power, then he might care about me deeply, but I'd still be stuck with my problem. So I know he loves me. I know he wants to do me good. He wants to heal me, save my child, supply my needs, but I'm not sure he can carry it out. So we need to have both, don't we? And so David says God hasn't spoken this not just once, but twice, that God is infinitely powerful and God is infinitely loving. And because of that strong foundation, he claims in verse 8, trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. So what can he do? What can we do? Trust. You just emphasize each word there. We can trust in him at all times. We can rely on him. We can lean on him. We can count on him. That's what it means to trust on him. Put everything in his hands and wait patiently for him. Whom do we trust? We trust in him at all times. The almighty loving God. He's the one we trust in. And when do we trust him? We've already said it. We trust in him at all all times. So tell me, when would not be a good time to trust the Lord? What time is it? It's 1054. I think now is a good time to trust the Lord, right? Amen. It's always time to trust the Lord. Trust in him at all times, ye people, he says. And so the first seven verses here in Psalm 62 describe that God alone, he's saying God alone is my refuge and my strength. And there's a little Hebrew word that's used six times there in this psalm. Two-letter word, ak. If you looked at it, it would just be ak. It's used six times. And it's translated there, the first word truly in verse 1, four times it's translated as only, and one time in verse 9 it's translated as surely. Why I'm bringing this out is the sense of that word is that David is trying to say, I trust God alone. I trust him only to be my salvation, to be all that I need. That's who I'm trusting in. And so you have it there. Verse 1, the beginning in the Hebrew has that word only, truly. And it says, it would say, only God, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. That's really what the Hebrew says. Waits in silence. All this tumult's going on around me. Absalom, all these people are speaking evil against me. But he says, in silence, I get before the Lord. I'm looking to him. Let all this stuff go on around me. Truly, my soul waits before God. And we sang that song earlier, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. And that's where it comes from. Not looking at the circumstances, not even looking at yourself, but saying, truly, my soul, it's waiting. I'm looking to the Lord. Looking to the Lord is what it says. And look in verse 2. He only, there's that word, ak, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. In verse 5, it says the same, my soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. And in verse 6 again, he says, He only, he only, God alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be demoved. 
What's David saying? He's saying, look, he's my rock, my salvation, my defense, my refuge, and he repeats it twice. What he says in verses 1 and 2, he repeats almost verbatim in verses 5 to 6. And what's in between that? He's proclaiming God as his rock, his defense, his strength, his salvation. And in between that is the enemy trying to do him in. He's saying he's just overpowering that. He's saying, oh, the enemy's loud and they're many, but they're nothing compared to my God. He's surrounding what they're trying to do. They may be strong, but they are no match for the rock of ages. He'll crush him in between those verses. Now, verse 3 there, when he talks about his enemy, it's a little hard to understand. But David is basically saying that his enemies are coming after him and they're attacking him and his weakness. And he's saying, I'm like a wall. He's like a wall that is bowed and ready to break, ready to crumble, or a tottering fence. And that's an unstable wall where they would have used limestone like they do in our county and use no mortar. And how many of those do you see knocked down? And he's saying, I'm like that. I'm just like an unstable wall. I'm like a bowed wall that's just getting ready to break. So what's happening is his character is being attacked. And he's brought some of this on himself. But his enemies, they told lies, it says. They twisted things about him to destroy him. Now listen, David has not just experienced this with Absalom. David has experienced this all of his life. Did you know that? His eldest brother, remember? He comes to see what's going on. He's just bringing him lunch. And he hears all this stuff going on about Goliath. And he's like, who is this filthy Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? And his older brother overhears him talking like that. And he's like, it's just the pride and wickedness of your heart that's brought you here. And David's like, wait a minute. No, no. Is there not a cause? Just let this guy go on and talk like that. But he's being maligned by his older brother saying that he has an evil heart. Saul spoke of David as his enemy. Doag the Edomite, remember, he's waiting there. He can't wait to go tell Saul about what David has done with the priest, and all the priests end up getting killed. Shimei, when he's going up that hill and going on that ascent, leaving Jerusalem, Shimei is cursing him, throwing rocks at him, calling him a bloody man, a son of the devil. And here, like we said in this psalm here, he's got his son Absalom, his own flesh and blood, has raised up a conspiracy against him. And what's David saying to us in this psalm? He's saying, I've endured these assaults against me. He's saying, all of my life, this isn't anything new. And he says, but I've learned one thing. This is what he wants to tell us. And he says, I will seek God only, alone for my help, because he has always been my salvation. I can count on that. From him comes my deliverance. From him comes my salvation. He's my rock. He's my strength. His grace has always been sufficient for me. As he's had some rough times coming at him in that way. And he would say, God is faithful. And I may be as weak as a tottering wall. I may be like a bowed wall that's getting ready to snap. But he's saying, my foundation is sure. I'm built and placed on a rock. He says, I'm not afraid. Not because I'm strong, but my feet are on the rock of ages. That's what he'd say. So what can we get out of that? Because one of the hardest things, I think, for all of us, and all, everybody experienced, this is part of life and part of the Christian life. The hardest thing to endure is to be falsely accused. And I'd say that is where the grace and strength of God is needed most. Amen. Greg and I have talked about that many times through the years. That is one of the hardest things, I think, to deal with. 
when you know you're being falsely accused. But listen, that's what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ, didn't it? And he's our example. First Peter 2 says this, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow, that you and me should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but did what? Committed himself to him that judges righteously. To me, the power of the Lord was more demonstrated in his restraint than in what he did. Because you imagine here the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they accuse him. They say, you've perverted the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. They say, you deceived the people. You're working under the power of Satan. And the thing is, he knew that just the opposite was the truth. They were guilty of all of that, perverting the nation, operating under the power of Satan. And yet they're accusing him of that. And that took great faith. He could have wiped them all out in a heartbeat. He created them. <laughs> he was sustaining them as the son of God. And yet, what did he do? It says he committed it all to him that judges righteously. He left it in his father's hands to take care of it. So many times this has happened in our church through the years. We're trusting the Lord for healing, finances, business dealings. People rip you off. They accuse you of things. We've had that happen to a lot of people in here that work. But even housewives with their children, things come up. People get involved. The government can get involved. And they say things that aren't true. And it's hard to take. But what David is saying is we have to trust the Lord at all times. That's what he says. So if you would put something there and turn back to 2 Chronicles 32, we'll look at the story of Hezekiah and how he dealt with that. So Sennacherib's come after him and they brought their army up to the wall. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 6, and it says, this is Hezekiah. He set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battle. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And after this did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, send his servants to Jerusalem. But he himself laid siege against Lachish and all his power with him unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah that were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He says, Whereon do you trust that you abide in the siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it? Know you not what I and my fathers have done unto all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any ways able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of mine hand, that your God should be able to deliver you out of mine hand? 
Now, therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this manner, neither yet believe him. And he's speaking some pretty hard words against King Hezekiah here. He says, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of mine hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of mine hand? And that's a word I wouldn't have spoken if I was him. Verse 16, and his servants spake yet more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of mine hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. And then they cried with a loud voice in the Jews' speech unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to affright them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spake against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, which were the work of the hands of men. Now, it doesn't say it here. We don't want to turn it. But they had been instructed when they said all that stuff, when he spoke all that blasphemy, when he spoke against King Hezekiah, you know what the people did? They answered him not a word. They dealt with him like you would deal with the press. No comment. Because we know who we've got our faith in. Amen. And look what it says in verse 20. And for this cause, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. What did they do? It says they prayed and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains and the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels slew him there with the sword. Turn back to Psalm 62. Is that not exactly what we see here in Psalm 62? He says, how long, Psalm 62, 2, 3, will you imagine mischief against a man? He says, what? You shall be slain, all of you. Isn't that what happened? All of these ones speaking against Hezekiah, all the kings, King Sennacherib, his spokesman, the leaders of the army, they're all dead. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowling wall shall you be and as a tottering fence. And here they alone consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They're speaking all kinds of lies against Hezekiah. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly is what it says there. And what happened? What did we read? He goes on to say in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before God because God is a refuge for us. And what did we read that Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, boy, wouldn't you like to be going and praying with Isaiah the prophet? Let's go in the temple, Isaiah, and pray. And we'll pour out our hearts together before the Lord. Now that would be a prayer meeting. I might pick up attendance here a little bit if I could get Isaiah to come or a prayer meeting on Thursday night. But that's what they did, didn't they? You know, it says he took that letter that was written to him saying all these evil things that were going to happen and he laid it out before the Lord. And he says, look, Lord, this is what they're saying. This is what they're saying about you. This is what they're saying about us. This is what they're saying about us trusting you. Look at what they've done. Look at what they're saying. Look at how they're grouped against us. And he says, and come and save us. Save us from his hand. That's what they prayed. They trusted in the Lord, poured out their heart. They made God their refuge, their salvation, their defense. And what happened? God delivered them, didn't he? Amen. 
And listen, we need to remember he will do the same for us. Trust in him at all times. Let me just say that enough times to where you don't like any other part of my message. I'm fine. If you go home murmuring to yourself, trust in him at all times. Trust in him. What time is it? It's time to trust in him. I'll feel like today was a success. Amen? Maybe I'll just put a period there and we'll all go home, right? Trust in him at all times because God wants us to depend on him at all times, right? His promises, his wisdom. How many times do we need his wisdom? <laughs> his wisdom, know what to do, what to say, where to go, how to deal with something. Trust in him at all times for that. His grace, his goodness, his power in our lives. Somebody's giving you a hard way to go and you want to strike back at him. That's the time to come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen. And receive that help from the rock. Because God wants us, if we don't have learned anything else in this church, I hope we've heard and learned that God wants us to live a life of total dependence on Him. Amen. <laughs> I like what Matthew Henry said. Matthew Henry said this. He said, we must so trust in Him at all times as not at any time to put that confidence in ourselves or in any creature which is to be put in Him only we must have an actual confidence in God upon all occasions trust in him upon every emergency to guide us when we're in doubt to protect us when we're in danger to supply our needs when we're in want to strengthen us for every good word and work amen, amen. and God will do we not have promises for all of those things and testimonies weekly of God's faithfulness that's the way it is. So he goes on in verses 9 and 10 and tells us there are two things we must not put our trust in. We want to put our trust in him at all times. But the two things we don't want to put our trust in is our fellow human beings and our earthly security or our money. In verse 9, that's what he's saying there. He says, surely men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. To put in the scales, they are altogether lighter than breath or vanity is what that says. So mankind, in general, is untrustworthy. We make promises, and for whatever reasons, we fail each other all the time, constantly. And we'll look to other people to meet our needs, whether it's friends, politicians, ministers, family members, and many times they let us down. And I heard a guy say that when he gives marriage counseling, he just says, I'm just going to tell you, before you get married, you're all going to let each other down constantly. He goes, I'm not trying to make marriage a depressing thing. I'm just trying to bring the reality of it in. That's just the way it is. The people, your best friends, will let you down at times. That's the way it is for all of us. Not intentionally, but it happens. And so he's saying, you put all of mankind, you put the low and the high. And he says, the high are the ones that are the worst. Because they make all these promises, politicians or whatever else, people in charge. All these things are going to do for you, and they let you down. Because they're not God. And he says, you put all the people in a balance in a scale, and he says, they're like Belshazzar was with the writing on the wall. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting. That's what he's saying about men. They're like breath. Because, listen, only God is totally trustworthy, isn't he? I mean, we can depend on him no matter what. He will never, people can deceive you. They can mean well, and they just can't follow through for whatever reason. That's never the case with God. Never the case. So he's not only great, but he's totally trustworthy. 
Numbers 23, 19, we know this verse, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? We can go to the bank with the promise of God. Not one word has failed of all the promises he made to Israel, he said, and it counts for us. Not one word has failed of all the good promises which he made unto you. God never fails. And verse 10, that goes on to say we shouldn't put our trust in money. He says, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, he says, set not your heart upon them. So when we can't trust God to supply all our needs, that's what he's talking about there with oppression and become not vain in robbery. When you can't trust the Lord to supply all your needs, you're going to be tempted to steal. You're having financial problems and you're running a business. You're going to be tempted to get money in ways you shouldn't get it if you can't trust the Lord. That's what's going to happen. And that's what he's talking about there. So taking advantage of a situation and gaining by unethical business practices, that's all that's going to do is bring a curse on you. That's what the Bible teaches. But he also says if you're doing things ethically and your business is going great and your riches increase, he says, don't set your heart on them. That's what it says there in verse 10. If riches increase, the end of verse 10, Psalm 62, set not your heart upon them. So if you would, I want to look at two Proverbs, Proverbs 11 and verse 28, and then we'll look at Proverbs 23. Proverbs 11:28 says, he that trusts in his riches shall what? Shall fall. But the righteous shall flourish as a branch. And then if you'll go to Proverbs 23, 23 verses 4 and 5. So it says here, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. In other words, don't be trying to scheme to make all this money. It isn't going to work. He says, verse 5, will you set thine eyes upon that which is not for riches? Certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. <laughs> so we don't have our eyes on the Lord to be the one supplying all of our needs and we're trusting in him. You're just all consumed and you got all the goods you're storing up. He's saying they will just make their wings as heaven. Because if that's your God, it's going to disappear. God's not going to be able to bless you in that way. So he's saying we're to trust in God at all times. Trust in him at all times, not in man, not in the security of the world. And the reason, like we said at the beginning, is verses 11 and 12. I want to read that again because I want to talk about that. We're back in Psalm 62 where he says, God has spoken once, twice as have I heard this, that power belongs unto God and also unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy or loving kindness. God is power. And God is loving, and that, I'm saying, is the heart of faith. We can trust that God is willing to help us and that he is able to help us. That's what faith is all about. And without that, you don't have faith. Got to be able to trust that. And so the father of the epileptic boy, getting into that in Mark 9. So what is he struggling with? He's struggling with the ability for Jesus to heal his son. If he could have been up there on the mount, he probably wouldn't have struggled. But Jesus had just been up on that Mount of Transfiguration in all of his power and glory. But by the time he comes down to the bottom, he's just back to being Jesus in the flesh. Seeing his flesh. 
And here's this man. He's wanting to have his boy delivered, brings him up to Jesus. And right as Jesus is there and he brings him up, the boy has a seizure right in front of him. And nothing's happening. Instead, he's getting questioned. How long has it been in this boy? He's like, what are you asking me all these questions for? And that's finally what he blurts out. He says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus answers, if I can do anything, what? If I can do anything, he says, all things are possible to him that believes. He's saying, listen, the problem is not with my power. The problem is with your faith. That's what he's telling the man. And listen, to the man's credit, he cries out, doesn't it? It says he cries out in tears. He is desperate. Lord, I believe. Just help mine unbelief. It said he had tears when he said that. He helped him, didn't he? Because you know how he helped him? Because the boy got delivered. And you don't get anything from God without faith, period. That's the way it is. So Jesus did help him. So you're struggling along that way. You're struggling in a trial. Things aren't changing. You cry out to him, Lord, I'm having struggled that your power is here to help me. Can you do anything about this? And he says, oh, I can do all that needs done. I just need that mustard seed of trust from you. It'll work. There's somebody that's struggling with the power. The leper in Matthew 8, he didn't doubt the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. He was uncertain about his willingness or his love because he comes up and kneels before him and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, but it's if you're willing to do that. So I know you have the power, the ability and the power, but I just don't know how much you care about me. Isn't that what he's saying? If you're willing, I'm not sure about that. And when he says that, when the man's questioning the Lord's compassion, his willingness, his loving kindness, that brought a response out of the Lord Jesus Christ. It did. I don't care about you. Because it says Jesus, when he heard that, was moved with compassion. And he put forth his hand and touched that man and he said, I am willing, be thou clean forever settles the question on healing and whether God is willing to heal his children, to come to him, anyone that's willing to come and trust him. And so David says, trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. Why? Because power belongs to God and also unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy, compassion. Your unfailing love belongs to him. So listen, Job struggled with that. So Job in his thinking, he knows God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. And all of a sudden, it didn't say Job did any sin, but he has got one calamity after another coming down on his head. And he began to what? He's struggling. As time goes on in that book, he is struggling the goodness and fairness of God. Struggling with the love of God for him. It's like, I've lived a righteous life. Why has God done all of this to me? What he didn't understand is what we get to understand because we get to read the first two chapters. He didn't have that advantage. Let's all be honest. I know this is the way it works for me. When all of a sudden I start having things not going the way they should, the first thing I'm like, God, are you mad at me? What have I done? Isn't that what we think? And let alone you got all your kids dying, all your properties gone, and you're right close to the point of death. Well, that'd be a mind battle and a half, wouldn't it? 
And that's what's happening. But we know it was a test of his faith, wasn't it? Would he doubt the love and care and justice of God if his circumstances, which you wouldn't just say they were a little bit pointing the other direction. They were pointing big time the other way about God's love, concern, and his ability to help him out. But listen, God appears to Job at the end of his trial. And what does he do? He supernaturally has a visitation with him. And he shows him, look, look at creation. This is my sovereign power, wisdom, and care of everything that I've made, Job. Can you comprehend any of this? You think you can do any of this stuff? And Job's like, oh, no way. Puts his hand on his mouth. and said, I spoke things I shouldn't have spoke. But God is basically telling him, look, Job, if I can take care of this vast universe and everything that's in it, don't you think I can take care of you even if you don't understand why this is happening? And that's what we need to remember at times when we get in those situations. Why is this happening to me? We've all had those moments. We will have those moments when things seem dark. And that's when it's trust in him at all times. Amen? Amen. Even when we have those times, we don't understand. We don't understand what's happening. And Job, it says in the end of that book, put his hand to his mouth and says, I repent, Lord, I spoke out of turn. Who am I to doubt your justice, your wisdom, your love? He said, I spoke about things I don't understand. He said, but all I've heard about you, Lord, thought I knew you, but now he's saying, I've had a revelation. My eyes have been opened to who you are. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, he said, but now mine eye seeth thee. When that happened, you know what happened? Not only does he know God's speaking to him, he didn't try to explain everything and why it happened, but he says, hey, my trust in him can return now. And that's what happened. His trust in him returned. Trust in him at all times. When you're on the top of the mountain and one disaster comes one after another. And here's why we can say that. Because unlike fickle man that's untrustworthy and uncertain riches, what do we say here constantly in this church? God is faithful. Is he not? Amen. He does love us and his power is unlimited. Because James tells this, James, in his book, in the New Testament, he says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. Isn't the end of our faith the salvation of our souls? But he says, you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful. It sure didn't look like that for Job, did it, through most of that book. And he had clear to the end of the book. But he says, you've seen the end of the Lord when that trial, how severe that was. But when it was over, he says, the end of the Lord, he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. That's the God we served. Turned the captivity of Job. Proved his love and power were never absent from Job. It just appeared that way for a time. And Peter had to learn that same lesson that God is power and God is loving that we read here in verses 11 and 12. So Peter, we talked about, he'd seen the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he still was struggling, even coming down from that after what he had seen with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he saw Jesus being led away by an angry mob and he's going away meek as a lamb to be beaten and crucified, it somehow seemed in his mind that this power that Jesus had is missing. Who's this person I'm following? And he denied the Lord. A little girl 
got him to deny the Lord three times. A little maid. But when Jesus rose from the dead and the women saw it and they reported it to Peter and the other apostles, you know what? He's still struggling with all this. It says they reported to him that they had seen the Lord risen from the dead. And it says their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. They're still struggling about this whole resurrection and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it says Peter made his way to the grave, said he handled the grave clothes, and he's wondering now, could this really be true? Could this really be what happened? It didn't take long. The Lord appeared to the apostles. There he is, the risen Lord. And it says they worshipped him and they held his feet. And from there on out, Peter had that part of the equation solved. He wasn't wondering about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd see him in his resurrected power. Amen. He's got that part of it solved. But there's still the other side of the equation. What do we say it takes for faith to get through trials? You have to know God loves you, don't you? You do have to know that. So he had no doubt this risen Savior had done what no one else had done. He's got power. But there's that issue of God's love for him because he denied the Lord Jesus when he needed him most. And he's got to be wondering, could I ever be forgiven? Could I ever be loved again? So turn to a familiar place, John 21, if you would. So we know the story in John 21 that Jesus appears to Peter on the shore. And he's cooking the fish on the shore. And what's he do there in John 21? He's pursuing Peter, didn't he? Peter wasn't pursuing him, but the Lord was pursuing Peter. And when he has that breakfast three times, he asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds each time that he loves the Lord. And then the Lord lets him know, well, I love you back, Peter. You know how we know that? He says, I've got a job for you. I want you to feed my sheep because I still love you and I have a great purpose for your life. To pastor my flock. And so do we have at that point. Peter has experienced not only the power, but he has experienced the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's seen him risen. He's risen from the dead. What else couldn't he do since he's risen from the dead? And he still cares about me. And that's why he exhorts us in 1 Peter 5. He said, cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Peter could write that. He knew what he was writing about when he wrote that. But he's saying all that. And so Jesus had a word for him. Look in verses 18 to 19. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither you would. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Now that is a hard word for Peter. He's used to being independent. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to follow me to your own cross and die. You're going to have to be willing to lay down your life for me. And so what we have going on, then Peter, verse 20, he turns and seeth the disciple John, whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, and Lord, what shall this man do? And Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter wants to know, is this guy, John, is he going to have to suffer this same fate that I am? What about him? 
You're telling me I'm going to have to be crucified and died. What about him? And Jesus is telling Peter, look, Peter, you know that I have all power in heaven and on earth. Nothing is going to happen to you that I'm not in control of. And you know now, Peter, that I love you with an infinite love. He's telling him, can't you just put your hand in mine and follow me? Can't you trust in me? As the psalmist would say, can't you, Peter, now that you know that, can't you trust in me at all times and see that I'm all you need? That's what he's telling him, isn't he? And that's what will get us through trials. When we know that, when we know that he is all power, we've seen that. And when we know that he cares for us. And Peter got that message as an old man because he wrote this in 1 Peter 1. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, and whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so, Peter's saying, when you know that, when you know the power of God and the love of God, you can endure the most severe trial, the most fiery trial that would come your way. Because he's saying that love and power of God will preserve you. He puts us in trials, what? Only to produce godly character and faith. He's saying it's much more precious than all the gold in Fort Knox. That's what he's saying. And so that's what I want to say. When we know God's exceeding great power and his love towards us who believe, then we will be able then to trust in God at all times. Amen? And that's what it's all about. That'll bring glory to his name. And that is why, why do you think Paul, the two things he prays that God would reveal to the Ephesians that we've talked about many times. What's the first thing is that he would give them a revelation of his power toward us who believe. That's chapter one. And then in chapter three, he prays that they may be, he's on his knees. He says, I pray that you may be able to comprehend the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. So we're right back to that, aren't we? That has got to be the basis of our faith. You have that, faith won't be a problem for you. Relying on God Almighty. When you know he cares about you and he's got all power, faith will not be a problem. So let's make that scripture our memory verse today. Verse 8, Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll give us all a revelation, a deeper revelation of your power your almighty power, a true revelation that we can know that we can trust in that. And also, Lord, equally that you'll give us a revelation of your deep love and concern and willingness to help us in time of need. I ask that you'll do that so that we can say, Lord, we will trust in you at all times, in all circumstances, in all places, and in all ways, because you're worthy and we can know that you're faithful. You haven't lied to us. All the promises that you've given us, you will fulfill. And I just ask you'll make all this real to us, Lord, today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand to your feet.
We're gonna trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not unto our own understanding. And all our ways will acknowledge Him, and He shall direct our path. He shall direct our path.